hate how in the in Europe they have the like they make you put like this is what your lungs look like before you die on smoking packages. It's just bullshit. They're like your dick won't work if you blast enough cigs. Here's the thing: you won't even get like they say that like you'll get erectile dysfunction. Do they but, say that? Yeah, but the problem do they say that? The problem is if I didn't, or let's say if you didn't. To the European, if you didn't smoke cigarettes, if Italians didn't smoke, if Frenchmen didn't smoke, they would never get to use their dicks because smoking looks so cool. And oh, they never get laid. To, exactly, it's such a good way to talk to someone outside mm. of a bar or something. Oh, do you have a cigar? Do you have a gawa? And she's like, Yeah, that's such a crazy accent. Um, <laughs> and, and sure, you get ED, but you can still, you know. Get in there. Um, <laughs> for the time being. For the time being, yeah. All the thing is about smoking is it's not that bad for you until you're really old. Um, it doesn't harm you. I don't think that's true, but I have a question, Brace. Yeah. Dr. Brace. Uh-huh. Um, what kind of cigarettes do they have in the Middle East? Gawa. Really? Yeah. Gawa. Well, the Arden, uh, which are Armenian cigarettes, ultralights, Arden. Uh, Chinese cigarettes, which Oof. were rough. Uh, and if you were lucky and go to go to the store, you got Galois blue or red. Huh. Uh, those are the ones I liked, but you didn't, you didn't get those really. You just got Arden's. Mm. Um, but yeah, it's like I told everyone out there, like, don't listen to the Zionist lies. Sigs are good for you. They make you look cool. They give you strength. It's like, uh, you like both the Pink Panther, but also Jason Bourne. Didn't you say that ISIS had like Coca-Cola? Yeah, they had Snickers and stuff. <laughs> Which is like, mm. yeah. Who's giving it to them? Obviously, the U.S. government is yeah, giving I mean. it to them. Um, <laughs> welcome, welcome once more to True Enough. Welcome to the death panel. <laughs> Ours is a panel deciding whether your grandmother dies because her uh, surgery to get bigger titties is too expensive. <laughs> Wait, but uh, they're kind of our, I mean, I know that was the Republican like scare point about yeah. the ACA, but they're like kind of our death panels. Well, they're private insurance companies are death panels. Yes, yeah. exactly. Uh, state legislatures that cut funding for Medicaid are, are, are death panels. This is what like bothers me. I get really gets my goat about uh-huh. the Republicans. They're so much better at memeing this shit. Yeah. And the fucking spineless, bloodless Could you, yeah. Democrats. This is what I was saying. Remember what I said about spirit cooking? Yes. How did we not latch on to spirit cooking as like a meme for elite decadence? It's the most horrifying image. I'm yeah. not sure if it's true. Death panels and what they were saying wasn't true. I mean, t- could you imagine Ted Lieu coming up with something that's like fucking advanced? The posting death congressman? Panel. Yeah. At him being like, you know, whatever Democrat version of death panels there I think is. That's what Chrisman called him. The so po- I don't want to like steal congressman. that from the boys. No, he hit up Anchor when we were unionized. It was like, can I do anything to help? And that email left was left unanswered. You didn't want him to post about it. Absolutely not. No. <laughs> uh, we are we are here deep in the bowels of a secret medical research center trying to make Liz less mean to me. Uh, we are joined today. 
by doctor with both an MD and PhD, Timothy Faust. I'm happy to be a pedo hunter now. Yes. I got my arms training and I can kill a man. I can kill a pedo from 400 feet away. That's what PhD stands for. Pedo hunting dude. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And I'm Liz. Hello. And who are you? Oh, me? Uh, I am, uh, you know, I am actually related distantly to one of the founders of Aetna Insurance. My name is Brace Belden. (laughs) Distantly related. I don't have any of the money. Um, this is a unique and special episode of True and On. I'm also here. Also, Young Chomsky, our producer, uh, insists on also being included in this. <laughs> Even though it's not the credits, technically, and I'm just doing him a favor by doing it. It's the opening credits. Debatable. Okay, so this is an unusual episode um, for us, but I think a necessary one. Absolutely. Um, so, yeah, this is a bit of a detour, but we are... In the beginning thick of it, starting to be in the thick of it of the Democratic primary, um, things are heating up, and um, we will definitely be back to our regular scheduled programming of elite pedo hunting very soon. But we had friend of the pod, Tim Faust, is in town on book tour for his book, Health Justice Now. Single pair and what comes next. <laughs> and so we thought, what a perfect opportunity to have him in studio in in the Black Lodge of Trunon headquarters yep. to talk to us about this funny business of healthcare. But more specifically, and this is kind of how we wanted to frame the conversation, why don't we have universal health care? Because I'm always saying on the podcast, and I've said it on other podcasts, that Um, you know, one thing that we kind of want to keep hammering home to our listeners is that these people that we're profiling, when we talk about Jeffrey Epstein and his uh, comrades in arms, in pedo arms, in decadent elite, disgusting bourgeois arms, are the ruling class of America. And these are not just the people who are, you know, sacrificing children in blood rights to Moloch, allegedly, but also the ones that are not giving you universal health care. And so we kind of want to talk about why that is and what we are kind of up against as we look towards the 2020 election, as we look towards a greater goal of um, what Tim calls health justice and Medicare for all, and also, of course, um, electing comrade Bernie Sanders and the abolition. Arresting everyone else who's running. <laughs> yes, and the abolition of the proletariat. Yes. Um, so, hi, hello. Hello, I'm happy to be here. <laughs> that was very long-winded. Sorry, guys. That's all right. Uh, your voice is music to my ears. It has perked me up and led me to ask the question, Tim, what is a doctor? <laughs> <laughs> a doctor is a kind of mammal. Um, <laughs> Uh, is that a real question? No. Okay. Uh, no. no, I want to make clear before we start on this. I am like, I, I mostly know about stuff like um, Jeffrey Epstein and healthcare. For me, I, I have no healthcare. I have, I have what they call Medi-Cal. So I like, have technically free healthcare, but it's the kind of healthcare that, in my case, actually put me, uh, made me have to go to the hospital because it's so bad. Uh, so Liz here is actually a nerd, and I feel like you probably what? should ask the first question. 
how should we start this? I want to talk about kind of the different forces that we're up against. We a lot of people talk about the insurance companies. A lot right. of people talk about um, their lobbying arms in Congress. A lot of people also talk about the uh, hospital monopolies. Big Pharma is a name that gets thrown around a lot. And medical device companies, of course. Right. So the healthcare industry in general is a massive part of our economy. And so the idea of basically attempting to nationalize it, because that's what really what we're talking about, is a huge endeavor. We're attempting to nationalize the payer side right now. Yes. You've got two components, the payers and the providers. Providers are things like DMEs, hospitals, mom and pop doctors, uh, pharma companies, etc. Those folks still exist under a single payer model. What we're attempting to nationalize is the payer side, the provision of insurance. So your insurance companies and, well, that's really it, your insurance companies. Right. And so what you, you mentioned before that we've got all these kinds of, we've got this rogues gallery of folks who together uh, like are why we don't have national insurance or national health care in the U.S. And that's because, I mean... Unlike other industries, I think, or other sectors of the economy, healthcare is one about literally who is permitted and who uh, to live and who was compelled to die, who was allowed to be safe in their own bodies, whose suffering matters, and it's rationed entirely right now by private profitability. Mm-hmm. Um, things like Medicare and Medicaid exist not because we're benevolent actors, but because we're siphoning off the folks who are the least profitable to take care of and putting them on yes. the public dime so that private companies can make a profit. And so you've got these, you've got industry upon industry upon industry that are layered together like brambles, um, choking out the life energy, the spiritual force of uh, millions and millions and millions of Americans whose existence is predicated upon that deep and mass exploitation. So you've got a bunch of concurrent actors who are serving to keep us from the things that we want, and they together are the, are the mass um, structural reasons that we don't have yet uh, single payer or anything beyond that in the U.S. because they've all got a shit ton of money. Yeah, and I want to be clear because this is also something that, Brace, you're always stressing, and I'm always stressing, that when we talk about these people we're up against, there's no, they're all just Republicans. Yeah. There's no, like, and sometimes some Democrats. Like, this is a, uh, an idiot, you know, this is a... Ideological choice. Like, they're, like, they're, right? I mean, I think that's what you're going to say. Like, they're, 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 we could easily, not easily, but we could definitely have universal health care in America. We have chosen to let poor children die from things rich children don't die from. Yes. Exactly. And I guess my, what I just want to stress is that, like, the obstacles are not, are, are cross-party. Yeah. Oh, no, it's a class thing. It's yes. not like a, it's not like a Democrat-Republican kind of thing. I mean, obviously more Republicans uh, don't want it than Democrats do. But the amount of Democrats that actually want it, you can count on, like, a fucking three fingers. Uh, it's, it's, yeah, it's definitely like, it's, it's, it's another one of those stunning displays of class solidarity. The fact that we can't like, if my dick gets broken once again, I have to snap it back into place. I can't just go to the doctor and demand that they do that. Uh, I have to pay for it, which is absurd. And the doctor would prefer to snap your dick back in place. Absolutely. Go go along his or her day of snapping a bunch more dicks back into place. But instead, they are compelled uh, um, to spend all all their time or 60% of their time filling out various billing forms to see if you have Medi-Cal or Medi-Cal A or Blue Cross 101.3 or uh, Kaiser Permanente Plan Silver Dash Omega or whatever. Yes. And they can't do their job of snapping dicks back into place. (laughs) Yeah. So I don't like... 
Who are the major players in the reasons on the on the corporate side on the reasons that we don't have uh, free healthcare? Sure. So the kind of scope of healthcare in the U.S. is divided in two categories: payers and providers. Payers, you've got basically just insurance companies. They provide, they pay for healthcare costs. That's what insurance is. On the provider side, you've got doctors, you've got hospitals, you've got pharma, you've got equipment manufacturers, and you've got, I think, most um, compellingly to me, um, the private equity companies that own a shit ton of hospitals and, and, and resources in the U.S. So maybe we take those kind of in, in, in that order? Yeah, that sounds sure. great. Sweet. So first off, you've got insurance companies. So that's right. Um, fundamentally, the notion of insurance is a very good idea. Insurance is pretty cool. Um, private insurance, and especially for-profit insurance, uh, or, or insurance which results in a profit, um, is, I think, immoral, or sorry, immoral and uh, uh, fundamentally bad, and also inadequate to the task at hand. So insurance exists because medical costs in general, across time and space, are always way higher than any individual can afford. You get into a car wreck, you get hit by a train, your dick falls off, whatever. Like, it's, it's going to cost a lot more than you can afford to get that fixed. So insurance is the simple concept of us pooling together a, a, some money from all of us and using that pool, that risk pool, to pay off healthcare costs when they happen to somebody. Mm-hmm. The idea is that someday you'll get got, someday your day of tragedy happens, mm-hmm. right? Like your car breaks and it swerves into traffic. You get bombarded with a spare neutron and get cancer or whatever. Like at some point you're going to get sick. And so you can just kind of pool the money together and it's, we siphon it off when folks need it. Private insurance takes that model and does two things. It fragments that risk pool or that, or that, that patient base into a bunch of smaller bases, which are then privatized and given to a, a given insurance company. And it extracts profit. And it extracts things like administrative costs and marketing costs and all these other costs that are replicated across every insurer in the space. Um, and insurance companies are fundamentally incapable of both seeking profit and taking care of the um, sickest people. Because insuring sick people is not very profitable. Right. Um, a person with hemophilia, an example I use in the book, costs up to a million dollars to insure. So if you're an insurance company, you don't want to insure people with hemophilia. So you do things like restrict access to drugs that treat hemophilia or cut off the doctors who treat the most hemophilia patients because they're your, they're your most expensive people to take care of or your most expensive drugs, your most expensive doctors. So you kind of siphon away the things that uh, don't make you money. Um, and like... Perhaps these things aren't explicitly done for those reasons, but it's, it's the net result. Right. My, my hypothesis is that insurance companies aren't necessarily malevolent, but they're just deeply incompetent to the task of insuring a full population. And so they carve out these things, which ultimately harm and kill people um, because they are companies who seek profit. Well, yeah. yeah, it's just the nature of the, of the profit-seeking system. Right. You know, it, it doesn't have a consciousness that it's choosing one way or the other. It's seeking profit and right. therefore it will do what it needs to do in order to attain those goals right yeah like that's the sole reason it exists that's the same thing for capitalism yeah it's like- um but in general i will the whole idea is that the bigger the risk pool mm-hmm. the cheaper yes it is for everyone because yeah. you've got all the sick people in with all the healthy people right like i like i know that for example at the um ucs at university of california they pool like all the different schools. How many there are of them? Like seven, maybe seven or eight of all the state universities are all pulled together. Mm-hmm. So you can imagine, and it's all you know, primarily except for for graduate and postgraduate mm-hmm. programs, but they're all in the same 
you know, and I think faculty is in the same program. But the primary population is going to be 18 to 24, which is, by insurance standards, overwhelmingly healthy. That's your cash cows. Yeah. Yeah. And so the sheer amount of people and with the age, like, it'll keep costs down for everyone. And it's incredible insurance, from from what I understand, Mm -hmm. for those very reasons. And you want to have a well. You want to have as large a risk pool as possible because that's how you have negotiating leverage with hospitals. Right. Like if we three were together, or we four were together, form an insurance company that insured just us, we'd be hosed because we would need hospitals way, way more than they would need us. Yeah. And so they say it's going to cost fourteen thousand dollars to yeah. get your finger snapped back into place or whatever, and we can't say no because we have no leverage against them. Right. Right. Um, yeah. So if you have a small customer base, a small risk pool or whatever, you are basically at the mercy of hospitals who are also bad guys. Um, there's no good guys here except for patients. Patients are good guys. Uh, primary care doctors are, are good guys. Nurses are extremely good are good guys. But uh, hospitals, especially big corporate hospitals, are, yeah. are bad guys mm-hmm. as well. And sometimes even like uh, the general hospital we have down here mm-hmm. may have done some... You mean some... Mark Zuckerberg? Yeah, excuse me, Mark Zuckerberg's hospital. you know hosp- what's funny about that? His whenever wife works it's there. bad press, yeah. it's called SF General, and whenever it's good press, it's called the Mark Zuckerberg it, hospital. The whole thing's stupid because I've literally, I've gotten bills, kind of. I've gotten like letters saying that I, I have to do all this shit. From Mark Zuckerberg Hospital. Like, no one wants that. You don't want your name on a bill. Uh, also, his wife works there. Priscilla? Yeah. That's stupid I, uh, Just kidding. I'm sure she's great, allegedly. I fucked her. Um, <laughs> so that's the insurance company. Yes. Mm-hmm. Then there's... Should we talk about pharma? How about hospitals? Because we're right, we're right okay. there. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, let's talk about hospitals. I'm trying to remember the order that we were going in. Yeah, let's oh, talk hospitals. Um, Scam pits. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Who needs them? Um, DIY or die. Yes. A, a rock is all you need. A rock and some incense. No. Um, um, so hospitals <laughs> come in a wide spectrum of flavors. You've got your massive corporate hospitals like the Cleveland Clinic, and you've got your small, hard scrabble rural hospitals in rural areas like rural Georgia, for example. And they're not operating the same level. They're not doing the same things. Um, but they um, all, like, ultimately, they are the primary drivers of, of, of price in the U.S. Hospitals yeah. set prices, basically. And prices are not set based off of costs. Prices are set for entirely arbitrary reasons. I've got some good examples that I like. One is uh, here in California, an appendectomy can range between $1,000 and $180,000, huh. with no bearing upon, like, patient condition or difficulty of appendectomy. It's just, like, based upon... Um, Arbitrary factors like how the hospital feels that day, what insurance company the patient has, which doctor is treating the patient, whether it's the doctor or, or, or a physician extender um, who's, who's actually in the, in, the, in the operating room. All these arbitrary factors that determine how much a thing costs. But that's, that's why you can't go to a doctor or go to an insurance company and ask, how, is this, how much is this thing going to cost me? Because nobody knows. It is an, alchem- uh, it is an alchemical formula that is uh, derived at the time of billing and not, not a moment before. So it's like magic. It is like magic. It's black magic. Okay. Um, and it's really stupid black magic. Um, also, like uh, uh, speaking of appendectomies, like there's a uh, there's this idea of provider uh, induced demand, which was examined in Vermont in the 70s. It's an interesting example. It focuses on tonsillectomies. Um, a a researcher took a bunch of Vermont is a relatively homogenous state and that counties don't vary too much from each other. One county looks just like the neighboring county as far as like racial distribution, income, uh, sickness, etc. So there's no like hot pockets of like 
extreme sickness or extreme poverty or whatever. It's pretty even across the entire way. So you would presume that a, a, a surgery like tonsillectomies would happen at a consistent rate across each county, which ended up not being the case. Yeah. You would neighboring counties with seven times the tonsillectomy rate of, of, of other counties. It turns out tonsillectomies tend to happen when the doctors uh, prescribing them happen to like tonsillectomies. It's based in training. It's based on where you, whether your hospital likes prescribing tonsillectomies or, or likes doing them. It's based on these entirely like outside factors, independent of whether a patient actually needs a tonsillectomy. Wait, Interesting. They like like if it. No, that's true because some do- I, I I mean this is just anecdotal, but I mean I know that like there's definitely depending on a doctor's opinion about whether or not a kid actually needs a tonsillectomy, uh-huh. which is. I mean, it's it's usually like if you've had strep throat like five or six times as a kid or something like that, and they're like, "Well, we could do this, and that'll stop you getting strep throat." But it's not usually required in order. Do you know what I mean? Like, it's yeah. it's basically I've, elective. I've got a great almost. example of that. This took place in New York City in either the '90s or early aughts. I think the early '90s actually. Um, researchers took a big group of kids, um, not for pedo reasons, but for medical reasons, yeah, and yeah. Uh, so they're safe. Thin line um, though. And who had sore throats and brought them to a group of doctors. And about half of the kids were recommended for tonsillectomy. Cool. So they took the remaining half of the kids and brought them back to a panel of doctors. And about half were recommended for tonsillectomy. All right. The remaining kids brought them to a third panel of doctors. And about half were recommended for tonsillectomy. It turns out that tonsillectomies just in New York happen to have a 50% recommendation rate, um, independent of whether or not. Like, it varied from doctor to doctor to doctor mm. to doctor. It doesn't really have, like, there's not, like, a clear standard for when you prescribe a tonsillectomy and when you don't. And hospitals play a really big role in determining how these things happen. Right. Another study done by the same guy, Dan Weinberg, Don Weinberg, really, really good researcher, um, looked at doctors who worked both at uh, both in New Haven and Boston area hospitals, Harvard and Yale. And uh, found that their referral rates or their surgery recommendation rates changed based upon what hospital they were working at that, at that point in time. Hospitals really pressure doctors in both subtle and unsubtle ways to fill every bed that they have at any given time. Yeah. There's this idea called Romer's Law, which is that every right. hospital bed that is built is going to be filled regardless of actual need. Now, I'm not trying to like condemn doctors. Most doctors want to do the right thing. Of course. I'm just saying there are structural pressures independent of... Uh, of, of you know, like conscious thought or whatever that really, really affect uh, things like surgery rates and that really affects price. Um, and so that's, a, that's like a relatively benign example, but it has significant, significant outcomes. So I have a question because you mentioned the sort of difference between hospitals like the Cleveland Clinic, mm-hmm. which is very famous, or we could talk about like Cedars, Sinai in mm-hmm. LA, and say like rural hospitals mm-hmm. that are not as perhaps well-funded or not as you know, maybe not as steeped in either philanthropic donations or what we'll talk about in a little bit with private equity and just like how that, because that leads to very disparate outcomes Mm -hmm. in care, right? Right. Um, So Cleveland Clinic is one of the world's best hospitals if you're rich. Right. Um, Mm -hmm. You can get a helicopter there and get a gold-plated heart transplant if you're a Saudi prince. No problem. They got a four. They got their own art gallery. Ah, like our good friend MBS, also Epstein's friend. If he needed one, that's where he would go. Absolutely. Well, are they really friends? Of course, they're friends. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, duh, they're friends. There was a, MBS a photo. is friends with just every guy. But that also, you there's don't a like. fo- I guess there's a photo in his house of them together. Yeah. And no, that was he would like always the first you, every heard. every every time someone would go to Epstein's house, Epstein would sort of either show them that photo or like prominently like display it next. Like you'd have you'd be standing in front of it or something like that. 
Uh, yeah, MBS rocks. I mean, he sucks, but it's... Uh, what was it that... Was it... Who was it? Tom, was it Thomas Friedman? Or was it... I think it was Friedman. Obviously. Who was like, oh, he rules now? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He was yeah. like the, it was like the woke prince of Saudi Arabia or whatever. Yeah, he is. A, he is. He's our woke king. <laughs> I like the Saudi prince fail sons who single-handedly keep the mobile games industry afloat. Yes. yes. I think those guys rule. <laughs> yeah, They're dropping like 86K to get like a like a, a fancy horse in a game where you just push a single button over and over and over I again. I know. It's so good. Yeah. <laughs> That's fantastic. I know. Saudi gamers are probably the most advanced gamers in human <laughs> history. And definitely in the history of uh, gaming on the Gulf. Just Felix, you'd know. Yeah, I'm sure. He <laughs> practically is one. Um, <laughs> okay, back to the Cleveland Clinic. Um, so yes. the Cleveland Clinic is the, the, one of the best <laughs> hospitals in the world. Um, and also, coincidentally, it's built in the middle of like a totally bombed out neighborhood in Cleveland where nobody who lives in the area can afford to get care in the hospital. Mm. One of the sickest neighborhoods uh, in the state, one of the sickest neighbor- neighborhoods in Cleveland, um, and because of the like position of the hospital and its real estate cash grabs, and it's like kind of like... Um, active pursuit of like the blight of the surrounding area for its own profit. Um, it's a, a it's, it's it's like this literal ivory tower in the middle of a like disaster zone of people who've been made poor and made sick for decades and decades and decades. It's like John Hopkins too, right? Yep, exactly. Like yeah. John Hopkins. Okay, oh, man, I've got a, a Hopkins story before I go into the rural areas. Mm-hmm. So Johns Hopkins. So the trend um, over the past fifteen years. Has been closing down. Has been to close down rural hospitals and to close down primary care centers and clinics right. yeah. in poor and sick neighborhoods. Um, simply put, that's because primary care isn't very profitable. Primary care is intimate and it's slow and it takes time. And our billing models of how you pay for care don't take those things into account. You get paid for a, an appointment, and an appointment pays you, let's say, eighty bucks. But some folks need like half an hour to get onto the bed or have a lot of questions, or are really sick, or are scared, or whatever. And like they might take half an hour to an hour uh, to like take care of, but you're still getting paid that 80, that, that 80 bucks to, to take care of them. Um, and that's like not profitable. You can't make a living off of that. Right. Um, so that's why you have, for example, the case now where doctors will see you for 10 minutes. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a if, big thing now. Because uh, now they have the nurses do the work, and then the right. doctor swings in to check the box to get, to get the 80 bucks. The kinds of act, like... The only kind of labor that makes a real difference in population health is not necessarily medical care, but compassion labor. It's social work. Um, medical care represents 20% of health outcomes. Um, the rest of it comes from social determinants of health, like housing and food, and right. those are driven more by compassionate labor instead of uh, medical care, regardless. So Hopkins had uh, found Hopkins was closing down um, primary care clinics in uh, uh, poor areas where people who were sick lived because it wasn't because they were losing money in those areas. These things aren't profitable. And so people would go to the emergency room at Hopkins to get the care they needed because there was no urgent care available. So they'd say, oh, I have a, uh, a sprained wrist. Oh, I've got my, my dick snapped in half. Mm-hmm. Oh, I've got, like a, I've got a really sore throat. They had to go to the ER because there was nowhere else to go in that area. Right. So Hopkins goes, oh, now these people are coming to our hospital and filling up our hospital beds. That's time we can't spend doing surgery or getting more like profitable care in there. Let's go ahead and open an urgent care center inside the hospital and then use that to charge hospital rates. Because what building you are in affects right. what prices are. Another thing that happens is uh, hospitals or especially PE firms, which I think we'll go into later, um, will buy up primary care clinics and then charge hospital rates because these are now hospital affiliates. Like prices are entirely fake. Um, uh, uh, you can overnight change how much a, a, a basic procedure costs 
based upon who owns the facility once the procedure happens. You've also got MRIs. Uh, MRIs have a, a here cost five times more than what MRIs cost in Australia, even though it's the literal same machine doing the same right. procedure. In DC, Sarah Cliff did a piece showing that MRIs, like the literal same MRI machine, the exact same one, uh, in the same hospital yeah. would have a seven-fold cost variance based upon entirely arbitrary factors like who's paying for it or time of day or whatever. So co- prices are entirely fake. And that's this is a thing that hospitals can can do because no one is stopping them. Right. Insurance companies are too small and too fragmented to really push back on costs, and hospitals are uh, um, chasing the profit. Um, but then you've got rural hospitals and primary care centers, which are kind of, kind of in a different boat. Rural hospitals are interesting. Rural hospitals tend to serve populations that are sicker, that die sooner, and are poorer. Right? That's right. how we have entirely pulled out of rural America. Hope you live in one of the 25 yeah. cities in the U.S. We were talking before the podcast, and I was um, saying that it's not just in the case of hospitals, but that like we have a massive capital flight issue yeah. all throughout rural America that no one is really looking at. And... Well, you're saying there's like no banks in a lot of these towns. Yeah, and- that there are there there are. I mean, community banks. First of all, the community banks took a huge hit after yes. the '08 crisis, and they were really unfairly. Um, you know, a lot of them had to close. I, I I think unfairly, and you know, others have said as well. And base and also a ton of mergers happened in in the wake of the '08 crisis, where you know people were just eating up other banks, and so you had an outcome of like you know, so many less banks than there were prior to the crisis, which only, and of course, as we know from our good friend, Mr. Carl, that as capitalism tends towards monopolization, as firms not not wanting to compete with each other, start absorbing each other, they're able to um, further, like, dominate and kind of uh, set the terms for this, for marketplaces. Yeah. So you have total capital flight from rural centers because there's no capital incentive to be there. Yeah. There's no jobs. There's no infrastructure. And then, so it's it's like a um, it's like a snowball effect. There's no way once that starts happening, and once capital flees, I mean, it's it's like a it's like a parasite or a virus that then spreads throughout all different sectors of rural economy. So it's in the case of hospitals and financing and local financing, but then it's seen in taxes and commercial real estate, which then sees it in jobs and unemployment. And it becomes a kind of death spiral. Sorry, that was my little rant. No, it's fine. You've described precisely how hospitals work in the U.S. right now. Hospital monopolization is a very real thing. It's being driven by private equity. Um, Hospitals that consolidate can afford to charge higher prices because no one can stop them. And monopolized hospitals shut down rural clinics because they're not profitable. Um, It is is expensive to treat sick populations. You have worse outcomes when your population base is sick. That's why SF General, sorry, Zuckerberg, um, <laughs> can suck because they're dealing with a base of people. Zuckerberg. At the, <laughs> they're dealing with a, with a base of patient population that is like way sicker than yes. other hospitals in, in the city. Yeah, if you go out in front of Zuckerberg, there'll be like 40 junkies just like sitting there, I guess, waiting for their appointments oh, and stuff like that. Oh, I mean, like Oakland that. General it's, is horrifying. Right. Yeah, it, it's terrible. And like you go in, I mean, I waited four hours in the doctor's actual office for a dermatology appointment once. It's like they just, they, they have staffing issues, but also just like the hospital administration doesn't need to make it 
better. Well, there's there's also a, a, a secondary factor there, which is the the idea of value based payment, which is Warren's plan for maternal mortality, and it's really really bad. Yes, I wanted to bring that up actually um, because it's structured similarly to what Obama tried to do with schools. Wait, so let's go back. What is it? So value-based payment is the idea that you pay for performance. You give hospitals that give a good job more money and hospitals that do a bad job less money. And the problem there is that hospitals that do a bad job do a bad job because their patients are sicker. Yes. Yeah, but also they do a bad job sometimes probably because they don't have much money, Right, right? Exactly. Yeah, it's a spiral. And so what it would actually lead to is more deaths of women. Actually. Wait, so this is just as dumb as it sounds? Yes. yes it's literally financial and more, it's being it's saying that we don't have enough financial incentives yeah. in place in healthcare. That's Elizabeth Warren's plan for dealing with maternal mortality. So we have rates. VBP and Medicare. Sorry, we have value-based planning payment and Medicare already. It's used and it's it's failed over and over and over and over and over and over and over again. Yeah. Um, it also, it's like there's a racial component to that because yes. um, 30% of doctors treat 100% of black patients. Uh, 70% of doctors treat Nobel patients at all. Like healthcare is racialized. And it happens to be in areas that have been made sick, have been exploited, have have been made poor. So the- Look at the fucking shipyards out here. Mm-hmm. In, the, in, in, in sort of the big, uh, the last basically mostly black neighborhood in San Francisco, baby Hunter's Point, there's this ex-Navy shipyards full of... Of radiation. Yeah. And it's like, you get breast cancer there, like, it's like one of the highest rates in America or whatever. People have like a 10, or it's way more, than, I think it's like 20 year left life expectancy less from natural causes than right. they do anywhere else in the city. The uh, infant mortality rate in Memphis, Tennessee, and the black neighborhoods that are pushed up against nuclear waste disposal sites is 20 per thousand. Yeah. Which is an in, like, that number doesn't exist anywhere else in the first or second. These are world. incredibly poor areas. Yeah. Yeah. With absolutely no, like, no, I mean, that's the other thing is that then you have, like, these hospitals, and like we were saying, capital is already fleeing mm-hmm. these areas saying if you have better outcomes, which would require them to actually reinvest in communities, which would cost them more, they would get more money. It's, it's just completely backwards. It doesn't work. It's right. cheaper for them to have better outcomes by excising poor and sick people than it is for them to attempt to treat them. Yeah. Also, one of the things I touch on in the book, and this is not uh, my idea, this is an idea that anybody who's ever worked in healthcare already knows, is that in like the lifespan of a person being sick and going to the hospital and, and, and having an outcome or getting sick or dying or whatever, the point at which they begin seeking medical care happens like at best midway through the process. Yeah, right. Yeah. Like uh, you die way faster of exposure than of cancer, for example. If you want to improve um, maternal outcomes, for example, if you want to de- decrease maternal mortality, like you got you to gotta get involved before the person even becomes pregnant. Like a person who was uh, uh, pregnant in a home that's full of mercury or lead or whatever, yes. um, is is uh, like you can't do a whole lot. You can't. You can like do your best to like, try to bring up birth weight, but like the lead and mercury were there uh, when they got pregnant. Right. Like you, you intervened way too late. So we kind of pushed us all on the hospital, and the hospital is structurally incapable of, of, of handling it. So it does a bad job because of course it's going to do bad. It's been set up to fail, and we punish it by slapping it on the wrist and taking a. A hundred thousand bucks away from it, or whatever. So, in poor areas where you're already going to get sick, because, for instance, yeah, like there's lead in the lead in the walls or in the in the water, the water or both. Or um, and the hospital, of course, has way more sick patients that it really can't do anything about because it's not obviously the hospital isn't going into people's houses and like tearing whatever the paint off and putting new paint up that doesn't have lead in it. Uh, they would get less money, yes, because their patients would would they would have worse outcomes because the community is poor. 
because so, yeah, so it's other a perverse co- incentive for hospitals then to just not treat the sick patients to basically get them off their balance sheet. Yeah, uh, to an extent, yes. And this so, is exactly what Obama. I mean, it's literally what Obama did with education, yeah. where it was giving quote unquote low performing. I mean, low performing public schools financial incentives to improve outcomes, and we know it's been an absolute failure. So this idea, I mean, it's a thoroughly uh, neoliberal, sorry to say the N-word, solution. (laughs) That really needs to be called out for what it is. Let's keep doing it. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, it sounds, it's it's crazy. It's like one of those things where I'm like, I'm always like, nah, I can't be as stupid as it seems because I'm dumb. And if I think it's dumb, it's, it's like... I'm sure it's bad, but it's probably not dumb. Uh, but this seems like an idiot's plan. One of my frustrations with health policy academia is that it keeps rediscovering its own navel, like every like twelve years. <laughs> Do you just say that about academia? Yeah, in yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, but like, we know what things work and don't work, and we constantly reexamine them because academics are required to examine things to keep to get their grants. Mm. Uh, so we examine things like work Little requirements. Cottage industry, if you ask me. We know that work requirements don't work, and yet yeah. someone's got to research them. So academics do, and therefore, by researching them, give credence to the idea that these things ought to be examined. And through that process, they they ought to be tried. Like it's it's it's, it's dumb. It's very very silly. A, a secondary factor in the rural hospitals is you've got massive bases of uninsured people. Yeah. yeah. Um, and especially in places like Texas, where 18 rural hospitals have closed in the past decade. Jesus, um, that's a lot. Yeah. More than, sorry, past five years? I think yeah, it's yeah, a lot less than that. Um, my home state of Texas, uh, you have lack of Medicaid expansion. So you have even more right. uninsured people. So the rural hospital, and like, let's get it clear. Like, I'm not trying to say rural hospital good, big hospital bad. You've got a lot of rural hospitals that do a lot of uh, fraud, which is often because they don't have money in the first place. Um, it's kind of like stealing bread to feed your family. Um, but you've got a lot of bad actors all over the board. Right. Um, so I'm not, I'm not trying to build this like very simple yeah. uh, kind of morality play of small, good, big, bad. And some big hospitals do really amazing initiatives like uh, uh, to help people in, in their communities. Um, but in general, this is the structure that I've seen. So rural hospitals uh, have um, a lot of uninsured patients. Thing about treating uninsured patients is you don't get paid because then they don't have insurance. So you got to give them bills of $100,000. They go bankrupt. You don't get any money. Nobody's happy. Um, and that leads to hospital closures accelerating. Right. Um, I think um, hospitals in non-expansion states close six times faster than hospitals in expansion states. Um, so you've got a bunch of different, like that kind of payer mix. Right. Because no one has private insurance in rural area. If you do, you're lucky. No one's got yeah, employer insurance. It's mostly Medicaid and Medicare that are paying. Yeah, because they don't those. have to like, yeah. Because there's no jobs. There's no jobs. Right. Um, or they keep you a part-time or you're an Uber driver. Well, before we get into employment stuff, because I do want to talk about that. I would love I, to. Let's talk about private equity. Yes. Which is like the big... Um, that is like the pedophile industry. <laughs> uh, huge specter haunting the United States. Private equity. They have their hands everywhere. It's really, really awful. Mm-hmm. So I can summarize private equity's role in two anecdotes, I think, um, in, 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 in the healthcare sector. One, they spent $60 billion last year buying up hospitals. 
Um, and usually hospital corporations or hospital monopolies will sell off their lost leaders, sell, not lost leaders, sell off their, their least profitable hospitals. Again, their poor urban hospitals and their rural hospitals, 2PE, who then turn them around, over leverage them, and flatten them. Right. And they're spending a shit ton of money to do this, and no one is stopping them. And this kind of like, this also leads to further consolidation because PE firms buy multiple hospitals and then merge them together into being the same group. And uh, hospital monopolies are, to some extent, immune to the charms of single payer because it's harder to negotiate. If you only have one hospital in a state or one hospital group in a state, right, you lose that leverage because you, you can't be like these guys will give me this deal. You right? Can, yeah, yeah. Okay. They they have the power to kind of set their own prices. Whereas in normal single payer, because the payer is so huge, it can say we're going to pay a. 20G for a, a leg replacement or whatever, take it or leave it, and hospitals kind of got to take it. When you have hospital monopoly, hospitals have way higher negotiating power and they control the costs or the prices itself. Um, it's kind of a gnarly cycle. Um, and of course, they're not using this size and leverage to take care of people. They're using it to extract higher costs from the payer. Um, so that's one anecdote. They're buying up these hospitals and merging them, and it's not good. Sometimes these hospitals are Catholic, and Catholic hospitals aren't required to do certain things from other hospitals. Mm -hmm. For example, if you are a person who is um, having a miscarriage, Catholic hospitals will make you wait outside the hospital before bringing you in because, God forbid, they abort a fetus. Mm -hmm. um, so people will bleed out in the lobby or whatever. Um, they won't do trans health care. They won't do uh, abortion care, even reproductive care. And when Catholic hospitals, in Minnesota, it's a big problem. When Catholic hospitals own all the other clinics in the area, you've got nowhere to go for hours to get like your basic reproductive needs taken care of. Right. Hospital monopoly, bad. And PE, hospital, peace. So P, it's PE and it's the Catholics, both uh, friends to pedophiles um, who have uh, really driven a lot of the uh, hospital yes. problems in the past Wait, 10 so years. So is the PE play then, because there's not a lot of money to be made, like what you're saying about how them like taking these, like buying up these hospitals and then kind of like turning them around, basically flattening them. I mean, there's not a lot of money to be made there. They buy them. up a lot of big hospitals too. But it's really in the mergers right. where the they're making the money. Like mergers are the big saying. money, yeah, to get that like pricing power. Exactly. Once hospitals merge, they can charge a lot more, and insurers, payers can't do anything about it. So it's right. kind of like so a union, but for hospitals. It's a class union. Yeah. yeah. It's like a union, but for capital. All right, I'm seeing it. Yeah, yeah. So again, when we're talking about having that leverage, yeah. again, the biggest population possible, having any kind of leverage over these price setters in negotiations that's really impossible to do when you're going up against like a very like one large firm that's owned by or one large hospital that's owned by one huge private equity corporation that has that leverageability against you. Yes. This is like literally like this is an actual like conspiracy to just rip us off. Well, it isn't a conspiracy. This is what class antagonism is. This well, is how it plays out. Well, I mean a conspiracy in the sense that like people are conspiring. I've got an actual conspiracy for you. So this isn't, I don't know if this is in the book, but it's a thing that I heard and saw, but I couldn't cite it as such because I heard it from somebody who was working in the field. Um, but I can say it here because no one's reading my footnotes. Um, <laughs> a PE firm acquired both a hospital chain and an equipment manufacturer. And equipment manufacturing is its own fucking like uh, uh, Hydra. Yeah. yeah. Also, Elizabeth Warren's daughter on the board of a medical device company. Very good. They do a lot of she, interesting things. Yeah. Elizabeth Warren worked with Republicans to repeal the tax on medical device companies that was in Obamacare. 
That's why I broke up with her. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Just throwing that out there, guys. So there is a clause in, I don't know who regulates DMEs. I, I don't know if it's FDA or not. Um, about, uh, uh, it's called the 510 clause, which is normally, if I invent a brand new gizmo that does, if, if, if it's a, I don't know, like a, a brain scanner or whatever, and it's a brand new device, nothing like it on the market, mm-hmm. it has to go through years of review, which is good. It should, um, before I can sell it to hospitals and, and, and that kind of thing. But there's a clause called the 510 clause, which 510K clause, which is I can bring forward a device and say it is materially the same as an existing device and get fast track to bring it to market. And so 510 products have the highest rate of recalls, the highest rate of problems, and the highest oh. rate of like a, a, a what's the term for it? Malpractice inc- mm-hmm. incidents um, of other devices. Oh, because you can devices. just really scam it and be like, right. oh yeah, this is like an MRI thing, but it it like costs nothing. But also, it gives you cancer. Well, it, you, you don't have to declare costs. You just say this oh. device, in, in and of itself, is basically it's just the, the same. same. Thing. Yeah, this is uh, this 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 bandage is basically the same. This kind of bandage, and okay. t- turn it around and charge a hundred bucks for it. Okay, it gets, yeah, gets fast track. You can make a camo and call it like an operator's bandage or whatever. Right. I'm just yeah. saying. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I got you. Just so uh, uh, there was a there was a 510k product that was a kind of data package for pacemakers, and. Um, this DME company was owned by a private equity company. And uh, the private equity company also owned a hospital chain. And the hospital chain did a lot of cardiac care because it had a massive diabetes population. And diabetes is a thing that leads to a cardiac failure. So um, there was pressure, like literal explicit pressure. People were told to um, prescribe this analytics package that did virtually nothing but cost $80,000 per patient uh, into the pacemakers because they were getting, like, the, the, the PE firm who owned both companies told the hospital, you guys got to use this analytics package now. Even though it costs way more and doesn't do very much, like, we are your boss. We say you should go for this. And so they did. And that's one way that costs go up virtually overnight. PE firms, because they, they diversify, right? They're very smart at what they do. Right. And uh, uh, as far as I know, it's not illegal to do that. If it is, then hope they go to jail or hell. Um, they won't. Either hell jail. Yeah. <laughs> um, I'm, I'm not Catholic, but I used to be, and I cling to it because I really need hell to exist. Mm. I really need the promise mm. that these people will it suffer. Does. Um, yeah, but, hell exists. I don't, I'm Jewish, and I, I'm like... I, as you can see by the payas, et cetera, all the gear I'm wearing, um, I'm pretty deeply related. And the fact that Liz is wearing a wig, even though we're not married. Excuse me? I just make women wear wigs around me. Um, that's an orthodox thing. You wouldn't understand. Uh, I also believe in hell. There has to be one, right? People have to get punished. I need one desperately. I really want one. Who's going to be down there? Oh, my God. First of all, anyone who's ever insulted me. <laughs> um, second of all, people who, like, uh, that one bald muni cop lady who used to, a lot of people, two heads know what I'm talking about, who used to fucking, they call her the bulldog. Was, oh, I know who she is. Yeah, she was a fucking jerk. Um, <laughs> and so I heard some lady on the bus talking about her the other day, and she, like, hasn't been a muni cop for, like, ten years. Uh, anyway, she would be in there. And also, hmm. Anyone most, who doesn't follow me back. Yes. No, yeah, anyone who, <laughs> those, yeah. That's it. Just those, just those two yeah, categories. People who don't follow back. I want, I want two hells. One is real hell and one's cool hell. Yeah. <laughs> those are just the, it's like Dante. It's like yeah. the Inferno. And that's yeah. just like the sixth. Cool hell is for skateboarders. Um, goths. Goths. Yeah. yeah. Goth adjacent people. Health goths. <laughs> Metalheads. Yeah, I want to go to that. I want to go. To, I want to go to Cool Hell. 
But I want real hell to be saved for, uh, you know, our friends in the PE firms. Yeah. Well, wait, circling back to what you were saying about PE, because I did want to, we did want to frame this kind of conversation as a, like, why don't we have healthcare and what are we, why don't we have universal healthcare and what are we going up against? And I think that um, one thing I do really want to touch on because I keep seeing this argued on the internet, the place where I live, um, and I really hate it, where it's like, well, Obama couldn't get this, the public option passed, and so who knows what any Democrat president is going to get passed. Therefore, there's no difference between Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders and their commitments to universal health care. And I want to, like, like, stomp that out because, mm-hmm. one... It's not true. It's complete revisionism. And you, if you know me, the one thing I cannot stand is any kind of revisionism about the Obama years. We are an anti-revisionist podcast. Yes. Yeah, in more ways than <laughs> yes. one. And um, <laughs> uh, two, this idea that, okay, people have been fighting for Medicare for All for over a century. Brace, you said your union... Has been supporting it since the 30s. Yeah, 1930. Well, when it started, it was. It's been for a nationalized health program since the beginning. Yeah, and I think a lot of a lot of kids new to the game, which, by the way, welcome, happy to have you here, think that if we just get the right person in and we just get the just the right amount of Democrats in Congress, yeah, and get our little majority, then we can like sign, seal, deliver a universal health care bill. And I don't think people really understand like exactly what we're up against. And this is something that I really like one of my pet peeves. I have a lot. She gets quite they're just regular peeves. <laughs> is that for all this um kind of like waxing poetic that I see from a lot of new young left people, which I again do, welcome. I have heard a lot of young people are waxing these days. <laughs> you know, I don't. I question how seriously people take capital. Well, I think it's people think that the government or like the state rather is just like a neutral arbiter. Basically. Yeah, or like it's Congress, and if we get enough good people in Congress, we'll get universal health care. Which like that's not how it works. Yeah, I mean it's it's it like didn't Parliament in Britain get like prorogued when they did NHS? Or no, it was the steel companies. He yeah. had to abolish Parliament in order to nationalize. And that was the at ste- a yeah, yeah, yeah. And that was at a point. Britain. I mean, there's a lot of people that think that the only reason that they were able to get the NHS in the UK is because it was so the country was like <laughs> destroyed. Exactly, and, and in America, it's like it's the state isn't just like you know Donald Trump and like some other like pedophiles. It's like of a lot of pedophiles who work in business do like Aetna and all these insurance companies and all these like hospital conglomerates like they're part of the same thing that we're fighting so it's not just like you can have like a good president and yeah. you need like a multi-pronged sort of approach you think James I mean for example and I was telling this to Brace earlier but it's such a great little anecdote and I don't have anything to, great to say about uh, Barack Obama but a bungler <laughs> yeah <laughs> Um, the old bungler himself, but it, there was an article in the New York times that basically there was like kind of a rumor going around that Obama wanted to, was threatening to by executive order ban dark money, which would have been, I mean, 
That would have been like, if he had just done that one thing yeah. in his administration, it would have been a success. But of course he didn't. But so there's a quote in the New York Times by one of the lobbyists from the Chamber of Commerce, or good friends at the Chamber of Commerce, which, by the way, have an office directly across the street from the White House, just so that, you know, anytime you're at the White House looking out on the veranda, you can look straight at who's actually in power in this country. It's the Chamber of Commerce. And he said, quote, we will fight it through all available means. And this is in a direct reference to a lot of the conversations that were happening at the time about what to do with a one Mr. Gaddafi in Libya, friend of the pod. I was just looking at Gaddafi. I'm literally looking at Gaddafi right now. <laughs> I was just about to, I was going to so quote some says, Gaddafi fact after this. He says, we will fight it through all available means to quote what they say every day on Libya. All options are on the table. So this is a lobbyist from the Chamber of Commerce in the failing New York Times, literally threatening to kill Obama if he signs an executive order banning dark money, which is how everything is done, not just in the United States, but around the world. So they will kill Bernie Sanders day one in office. <laughs> well, you know, I'm not going to say that. But I will say that when we talk about these forces of private equity and these insurance companies and these hospitals, we are talking about much bigger, like capital in general is a much bigger, more serious force than just convincing caucuses in fucking Congress, which is, by the way, largely a functionary body, but that's for another rant. A lot of clowns. Yeah, serious. Real jokers. Joker's trick. (laughs) Once again, Washington, D.C. Liz gets to say the joker's trick in the pod. (laughs) In Washington, D.C., <laughs> um, is that a Joker voice? That's <laughs> my Joker voice. Um, but I, I just—that's really. I like. I really want to stress this point because I don't think that people really. Un- and I, you know, it's daunting. But I think that people really don't understand the forces that we're up against. No. And so again, I was saying about the Russianism. There's this whole idea that Obama came in with the intent to pass public option he got like shut down by congress and he just like couldn't get it done and like that's like factually like that's not what happened that is not true i don't know about his what's in his heart and mind i don't even fucking care to be honest it don't matter it don't matter hearts and minds don't matter we're not idealists on this podcast or the uh people in charge of invading vietnam (laughs) but him max Baucus. And everyone else involved with the, you know, the legislative slate and who was involved in all of the talks about the ACA. Like, one, they shut out single payer and public option advocates day one. So this idea that it's just like, oh, well, we'll just lobby Congress once we get the right people in there. No, that's not how it works. They just shut them out. They shut them out. And then second of all, you know, a good thing to remember about Obama was that and this isn't, you know, we were talking about this right before we started recording. Sorry, I've been, like, really going off. But, um, you know, this was one of the most important revelations from the Podesta emails was that Citibank had handpicked his entire cabinet before a single vote had been cast in the 2008 election. So you've already got an entire team that's, and this is at the height of the financial crisis with basically the status of every bank up in the air 
about who the, the government was going to bail out, why, when, how all this was going to go down. Citibank basically determining who, signing off on who exactly they were okay with in every position. So this idea that he was just hamstrung, he wanted to do this, like, no, that's not true. That's not what happened. And so it's important to remember all of these things as we look towards 2020 and what is actually at stake with the fight for Medicare for All. Well, there's, I, I would, I would, I would uh, take that a little bit and say that these problems, like capital is not necessarily threatened explicitly by, 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 by single payer. Because it's just, all we're doing is changing who's paying the bills. We're not changing right. the, the bills that are being paid. And so a lot of the, like, there's two problems in health policy. That's an oversimplification. But there's cost and there's coverage, right? Um, cost is, is, the coverage is who is and is not being covered by insurance. Cost is how much does it, does it cost to insure them. Um, the coverage problem, single payer solves, but it's not, and it, it now has new positioning to tilt against those cost factors. But like, there's a lot of ways that big hospital companies, pharma, et cetera, will be generally fine if, if, uh, if although a little bit um, flattened through single payer. Single payer is not, is not a revolutionary idea right. in and of itself. And so I think that, um, like, that's why I think framing the fight as something bigger than just single payer is interesting and, and, and worthwhile. Mm-hmm. If, you set, if, if you set your eyes on too small of a prize, then you're just, I don't know, like, I, 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 am, I feel bad about that. Because they're really, like, <laughs> there's, this is a, ultimately, we want to build a weapon that can be used to tilt against the forces of capital that are actively exactly. dominating and, and, and miserating people. Um, and, and, and I think that's um, way more... Uh, noble and endeavor than, than than settling for something smaller. Well, and I think the what's important to then stress is what actually something like Medicare for All would do mm-hmm. is not just like you say settle out like you know uh, who pays for what and having this larger pool which will lead to lower costs. Although that is absolutely what will happen, mm-hmm. but that it would untether. And this is what threatens capital is that it would untether workers right. from their employers. And this is a really, really important point. Because in the United States, we have a very, I mean, in the global north, but I mean, throughout the globe, but the United States has an incredibly weak, uh, the situation with labor is incredibly weak. Yes. And cla- I would say class consciousness is at an all-time low. Yeah. And there are very few routes towards reviving that. And one of the clearest is by getting workers just a little bit more space from their bosses. So when when Bernie came and spoke at the ILWU like endorsement interview or whatever, we had like an hour and a half or hour about uh, long like sort of back and forth and there was question and answer thing. And the uh, head of ILW Canada sort of speechified because we were talking about Medicare for All. Mm-hmm. And it's been a big thing. You see a lot of news articles being like, a lot of unions don't like Medicare for All, which is definitely not as true as they make it sound. Like there's been a big push in many unions, including many unions I don't even like, for Medicare for All. Um, but it's it, the Canadian guy was like, we don't have to bargain for health care where we are. And like we can just bargain for wages and that gives us more leverage and it also gives us more leverage to strike because like if you look at UAW like you were saying like why like some kid like some one of the some kid of a worker losses like cancer co- coverage right yeah 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 and like it's it's it makes it a lot harder to decide to strike 
when you're sick or when you someone you were worried about your kids if they get sick or something like that. It gives you a lot more freedom to do that. But also, what I do like about Bernie's plan is that if 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 like he says, like they would they wouldn't just be able to the company wouldn't just be able to keep those costs. They would actually have to pay them to the worker in the form of wages. That would be huge. That'd be like mm-hmm. a that'd be like a fifteen percent raise for some people, like twenty percent raise for other people. It's insane. Uh, and, and it would give them, I mean, first of all, it would just boost people's wages like fucking crazy, but it would, it would, it would give people freedom to not like be stuck in shitty jobs, um, or to be stuck in shitty marriages or something like that. It, like it, it's, it's, if there's universal healthcare, you don't have to like make all these decisions basically based around other people ability to withhold health care from you. right the first thing they do is take away your kids health care yeah. whether you want to strike whether you want to mm-hmm. say fuck you to your boss whether you want to take a i mean fucking take a sick day one mm-hmm. too many times um at at, at, at like a, a, at a at a shitty job the first thing they do is take away your kids health care so you are shackled to your employer yeah. your employer dominates every aspect of your personal health like literal agency but whether you have the dignity of, of, of being free in your own body is tied to whether or not your boss is a prick which is insane right it's servitude uh, it's a form of it's, it's a form of servitude to your employer that that that, that literally shackles the determinations of life and death to uh, how your like how good your boss feels that day, and this is uh, a great unshackling I think like you guys were saying of, of American labor. It's a it's a reprieve. The boot is being taken off the neck at least a little bit, and my hope is that that gives us like so. There's this documentary called Fix It, which makes the single payer rounds. I've run into it a couple times. Um, like two touring comedians or two touring stage magicians, um, and I fucking hate it. This documentary sucks ass. It's a documentary aimed at small business owners saying you'll pay less in mm-hmm. healthcare costs. Um, and I, I posit, I believe that small business owners, maybe some of them are good. Like not all business owners are bad. Like some of them are nice people, um, apparently, allegedly. Um, but this does like relinquish their control over their employees in ways that they might not care for. And so I think this idea of like the 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 rainbow connection, the the, the friendship circus of trying to bring aboard business owners under the auspices of this will help reduce your, your per-person employment costs, uh, I think is... Misguided. Ill-conceived, yeah. yeah. And frankly, I don't care for it. Yeah, I mean, I think that what's been lost in a lot of these, like, healthcare debates is this, like, exact thing that we're talking about, which is that even just this the small lift of the boot on someone's neck, like, just getting it a little bit further off your neck what it with a universal healthcare system like we're saying what that would do to just i'm not saying that that would overnight lead to more labor uh like a larger labor movement but it would fucking help so much yeah because it is nearly impossible like to participate in any kind of labor activity when your life or your kids or your wife or your husband or whatever, their health, their life and death is tethered to your paycheck. Mm-hmm. I think in, in sort of the best case scenario of trying to get single payer Medicare for all um, is both like a, a, like I was saying, like a multi sort of pronged assault from both hopefully a Bernie Sanders presidency, but also really from labor, which is like what, can I think sort of tip the scales in its favor because you could do things like strike or you could do things like have these big you know labor actions of whatever kind uh pushing for it instead of just like 
relying on basically like whatever Joe Kennedy, um, who's going to probably be elected next year, right? Uh, and all those fucking pervert freaks uh, for voting for it. Like, you can really pressure them in other ways to do it. Well, yeah, I think that's what's really been lost. I mean, this is part of the kind of, like, you can call it neoliberal, you can call it late capitalist, you could call it capitalist realism, like Mark Butcher says. But this sort of, like, kind of cancellation of the future, he calls it. But mm-hmm. just the idea that... Cancel culture. Yeah, I was about to say, <laughs> damn, cancel culture uh, was real. He got cancel culture. I guess he did kill himself because of cancel culture, so... Yeah, seriously, cancel culture is real. Mark Fisher's not around to tell us about it. Just keep that in mind, my friends. But um, that, you know, that there are no actions... Like, that basically, like, <laughs> it's kind of like what Margaret Thatcher says. There is no alternative. Like, that there are no actions outside of what we know how quote-unquote politics gets done which is that it goes to the legislative branch yeah it goes to like whatever whatever and so our understanding of what's possible is inherently limited to that scope and by the way the politicians would like to keep it that way um they don't want you know a mass labor movement would not happen through simply like pressuring congress people to pass law you know what i mean exactly yeah but so a lot more is at stake here on Capitol's end than just uh, some free health care. So, yeah, than just like a better price setting mechanism. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. And I think that that really get, has been lost in a lot of these conversations, especially when, you know, my little hobby horse and Mr. Brace has been taken. You've been all Twitter fingered about this uh, uh, recently. Uh, about Elizabeth Warren? Yes. <laughs> yeah. Uh, dry, the driest woman in the world. I'll leave that. <laughs> yeah. Still wants to do it, though, which sucks. Get all fucked up. That's why we need free health care. My shit's all fucked up from it. I mean, yeah. I... <laughs> My dick's all fucked up from Elizabeth Warren's dry vagina. One which of- is why we need free health care. <laughs> That's why you go to the dick doctor. Yeah, it's why I go to the dick doctor who charges me an arm and a leg. Because uh, she's been incentivizing your dick hospital. Yes. Does a poor performance at the hospital. <laughs> I think too, um, and this this is maybe going to lead us in a different, or I don't know, it, it kind of all goes together. And this is something I think that you kind of talk, you touch on in your book um, very eloquently is about how we conceive of healthcare as um, consumers. And this is something that kind of Elizabeth Warren I've noticed is the way that she talks about. It's kind of her worldview actually, which is a major ideological difference between her and Bernie Sanders. But that, like, um, there's this idea of having, like, consumer freedom and choice in the marketplace. Mm -hmm. And having the freedom to go out and buy insurance... Or have and and choose between plans. Well, choose between like you were saying, bronze, yeah, silver, it's HBO, not, whatever. It's not just like the HBO. choosing between plans, but it's like we conceive of healthcare as something that even belongs in a marketplace, even a well-regulated marketplace. Right, and it's fundamentally a non-market good, uh, right. for a, a bunch of different reasons. Uh, and the idea that you can force it into one is this genuflection to the idea that markets are the only thing that can exist, like what, what, like what you were saying. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's stupid. It's short-sighted, and it doesn't. It, it, it takes. It, it's 
It's the kind of idea you would have if you've never experienced healthcare before, if you've never needed to go to the doctor, if you've never been sick. Um, the idea that what we need is more freedom in the, in the quote unquote consumer freedom and the provision of healthcare ignores that one, that freedom has a massive time cost. You, you become bogged down in the things you got to do to, to mm-hmm. access that healthcare. Mm-hmm. And two, that like you, you, you are entirely unable to predict how much healthcare you will need uh, in a given year. These things are always surprises upon you. Uh, um, and you, you don't have like a relationship with health that has like a flexible demand base or whatever. When you need it, you need it. And when you are forced to pay for costs you can't afford, you just don't seek healthcare, and therefore get sicker down the road. Like this, these things don't fit market models, um, and they never will, and they never can. And so the demand that they do is to ignore the realities of what this thing is, because you believe that markets are themselves somehow the 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 paramount expression of being. Yeah, and this um, ties into just kind of like larger liberal conceptions about what we would call like freedoms, which are that the two liberal freedoms that are that like everything is kind of centered around both individual freedom Mm -hmm. and property. Yes. And so the idea that rights, individual rights are kind of negotiated within this might make get me in trouble i don't know if i should get into this go for it it's baby. gonna get me going off about abortion rights. i came her i gave her the idea <laughs> so whatever what? she's about to say oh i know what you're about to say that says this is not gonna get you in trouble that basically like are you talking about how i'm talking about how i hate roe v wade <laughs> oh i didn't know about oh yeah because it's like it whatever roe v wade will never do what people think it will do and it cannot because of the way that it's conceived Go off, queen. In the same way that we think of healthcare. This ties together. But Roe is not... People think, think that Roe is a right to an abortion. Uh-huh. It is explicitly not. It gives you... I mean, to get really vulgar, but this is totally true. It gives you the right to go purchase an abortion in the marketplace. Which means that what it says is not that the state... It's a negative right, not a positive right. Meaning that the state... Huh does not have, through privacy, right, through the, the creation, because it doesn't really exist, in the 14th Amendment of the right to privacy, that the state, therefore, has no material interest of getting in your way as you go to purchase an abortion in the marketplace, which is a private right. So the state does not have an interest in facilitating the expression of that right through either paying for it or through ensuring that it is you you can actually you know express that right so this can't get in your way if you want to do it in a private transaction exactly and so it is absolutely not a substantive right so but if if all private whatever uh purveyors of abortion decide not to do it or like are basically pushed out of being able to do it whatever in, in whatever well, no state. because there's there's laws in place i mean yeah but I mean, do those laws mean much? I mean, look at the. No, they do. Like- but the problem is, is that since, well, there's a couple of things since since Planned Parenthood v. Casey, that what has shifted shifted in terms of where the kind of legal battles get, um, kind of like hashed out, is over what constitutes an undue burden. Gotcha. But that just reinforces, reinscribes the fact that this isn't a right, because now what is being debated about, and this has been going on since whenever Casey was uh, 92, 95? Ah, maybe what do I look part. like? Casey? <laughs> um, but, so all, all legislative action and, you know, 
legal action, which, by the way, is all determined by bourgeois big law, which have absolutely no interest in creating substantive rights. No. Because, again, they're all liberals. (laughs) But um, is that it's all over whether or not, in any given situation, the state is either you know, getting in the way too much or not getting in the way too much, right? What constitutes an undue burden on a woman expressing this right? And also there's a lot of, you know, non quote unquote nonprofit, the nonprofit complex. Yep. Yeah. We talk about Planned Parenthood. There's others. I'm not gonna get into I it. I work for I don't one. need to name names. I would but get, I, yeah, but if I don't you, name I yeah. guess where I work. I worked for Planned Parenthood briefly in two thousand fourteen. Yeah. Um and I mean yeah they, they like they they are so effective not at doing what they do, or sorry, not at doing what they say claim to do, but at squeezing out possible donation dollars well, in, exactly. in rural areas. And here's the question, is if these organizations are committed to reproductive health, why the fuck, and I will use that, I don't like swearing, but I will use it now <laughs> because I'm very angry, why the fuck are they not supporting Bernie Sanders and Medicare for All? Well, because it would put them out of business. Yes, perhaps they wouldn't be able to get the donations that they would if we took reproductive rights out of the sphere of cultural and legal battles and into the sphere of healthcare. And here's the thing about Medicare for All is that it's basically a workaround to the toxic Hyde Amendment, right? I mean, Bernie's bill has this written in. And I'm not saying there wouldn't be legal fights, but it would change the terrain of where those laws are fought. So it would be fought on the terms of healthcare rather than this liberal conception of rights, of marketplace. Yeah. It would turn it into a battle for a positive right. Damn. And so this is and so people really need to ask, like, you know, remember in 2016 Bernie got all that shit for calling Planned Parenthood the establishment? Mm-hmm. He wasn't wrong. Oh, it's big abortion. Yeah, and so we've got to, you we know... We need more mom-and-pop abortionists. <laughs> I mean, honestly, we do. We do. We literally yeah. do. Well, what we need is... I mean, when when you see organizations that are putatively feminist, mm-hmm. or, you know, I'm a big fan of saying, if people call themselves feminists, then I'm going to take them at their word. If this is feminism, then that's feminism, and we should critique it on those terms. Yeah. If Alexandra Ocasio is a, social, is a socialist, I'm going to fucking critique socialism on her terms. But uh, that's for another podcast. But if all of these, you know, ostensibly feminist nonprofits, <laughs> big feminist law, all of this shit is not supporting the thing that will guarantee reproductive rights for all, will guarantee health care. Well, it's self-preservation. We've got to ask the... why, and you just got you got to look at the money, right? It's certainly a choice of, of self-preservation over the over the the broader nominal goal. Um, I don't know enough to make a to to decide whether or not I think it is the money or not. Because I know a little, but I don't know enough to actually decide that or to to to, to think about that. Yeah. Um, but I wouldn't be surprised if that were the case. Well, I would um, really, I mean, I think they've got a lot to answer for. Their, their failure to get behind a single payer, like state-based single payer is a bad idea. for It a, can a never work. Yeah. But, that, the, fact, that, but the fact that, that, yeah. that Planned Parenthood like, gutted the Colorado movement right. um, is really telling. Um, mm-hmm. And I really don't want to say they're afraid of being run out of business because that, that's, that's a step. I don't think it's, yeah. That's a step too far for me. Um, uh, I the, don't even think it has to be like that explicit. But I think, you know, 
when you see donations going down, I mean, that, right. you know, and by the way, they pay people a lot of money. They've got high salaries on there. Not necessarily the people in the clinics, of course. But this is just, well, the, all this is just the case of nonprofits in general. Or the lawyers. The lawyers don't pay a lot. Sure. Mm-hmm. I'm um, sure. But you know who I'm talking yeah, about. Absolutely, like, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I work at a nonprofit and we, I do, I'm a drug counselor part time, right? Uh, I love. Tell, telling people not to do drugs and then also selling them Oxycontin. No, brace. <laughs> Just plan on the second part. Uh, <laughs> but I go into uh, I go into a, a one of the bigger also nonprofit um, re- detoxes and it's like for street level detox like people. You know, just getting off of drugs and stuff. We, a lot of homeless people, a lot of people who live in single room occupancy like hotels stuff like that. And recently. They changed the like length of time that you can stay in the bed there. It used to be 30 days and then they would get you in a program, like an actual program where you live for like several months or a year or whatever. Uh, now it is seven days. And the reason they're doing that is even though it's not only a health nonprofit and it doesn't – it makes enough money. It's not like it's in the red or anything like that uh, because they get paid by the city and they get these, these, fund, this, these funds – uh, because, like, the amount of people they have there in a year, right? So, I mean, if you – they can have four times the amount of people now, uh, now that they, whatever, went from 30 days to seven days. And it's been insane to see because the recidivism rates for, like, people who are in, in programs, it, it, it goes way up the shorter amount of time they're there. Like, the, mm. the longer someone's in a program, every day, like, adds more chance that right. they will not go and use right when they get out. And now it's like we have the same people in there every single week. Like they get in, they're in there for four days or in there for a week because it's a seven-day maximum program. They're in there for four days to a week and I won't see them maybe the next week and then they'll be back, back the next week. So this is, this is uh, one of the reasons that I'm really interested in health finance and health billing and how these things work because you've got three basic models of paying for, paying for health care. One is fee-for-service. Doctor gives you an inventory and you pay for those things at their rates. Two is a, a paper diagnosis or paper like bundle of care. A knee surgery in general is going to cost twenty thousand dollars, even though it has many different components. And the thirdly is paper capita, paper person. And all three of them have like massive downsides. So finding the right balance of like the Tetris game of like when do you use which for whom and how has like incredible life or death consequences for people all across the board. And like that's a really interesting problem because it's 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 crucial to people's well-being and this uh this determination that has been have been spread across hundreds of actors that are fundamentally incompetent at realizing long-term benefit and as a result we have models that are adopted by the public sector that do things like tamp down rehab rates to seven days instead yeah. of 30 um like this these questions are paramount in determination of, of life and death and uh, we ought to bring our, 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 our best hammer to the nail. Right. Uh, we need to have single pairs. We can assess these things in their, in their full term. There's actually, so there's, I don't, I don't mean to change topics. No, go but for so it. So I think single pair, Medicare for all, um, Medicare for all that is single pair, not Medicare extra for all or whatever. Ah, um, Medicare not, for America Don't believe extra. the podcast, Johns. Um, fuck we're those coming, guys. We're coming so after bad. the That's podcast, literally, Johns. Those are the Johns from Johns Hopkins. Wait, mm-hmm. also, remember, they're the ones who convinced Warren to take the DNA That's test. That's so fucking funny to me. Such an own. I want to be, and I know this has nothing to do with what they're talking about. We can go back to this in one second. Imagine, if you will, if Bernie Sanders had been like, oh, I'm Native American. For like twenty fucking years, what would have happened? It's so fucking ridiculous. It's in, she did red face. It's not only that; 
She didn't until a lot of affirmative law action laws passed. Yeah. And she went from being a small town college professor Podunk. to being tenured at Harvard Law yeah. and paraded around. As their sole Native American. No, the first woman of color professor of law Ama- at Harvard, which is, by the way, cited in a paper called intersectionality and positionality in the academy america America rocks i mean it fucking writes itself and you bring this up to any one of these pmc warren fucking liberal freak ass unfuckable dorks so bring this up to your manager's manager (laughs) you bring it up to them and they're like uh this is like not really a problem i'm like okay bitch yeah Anyways, back. Sorry. I, I think yes. it's very funny. I have nothing to so comment. You guys got it. Um, it's so funny. I just, she was, I love that the, she these are all she like the anti-racist yeah. white crusaders of the PMC that are like, mm, actually, someone pretending to be another race isn't a problem. Yeah. It's like, all right. Once again, the Dolezal is the Elizabeth Warren for actual working people. Because you can get her, <laughs> I yeah, yeah, love you can get her to say whatever you want on Cameo. Have you read that Adolph Reed paper on Rachel Dolezal? No. It's I, very good. my God. Not a big Reed guy. It's very good. Okay, I'll check it out. You should. I'm not a big reading guy. Yeah. <laughs> yes, you are. You should see this notes this guy got. Um, Wait, so go off. Okay, Quinn. go off. Um, Sorry. Excuse me. I think single payer does two things beyond itself that are really interesting to me. One is the emancipation um, of the person from domination by the employer for the health care of you and your kids, which lets us organize in new ways, strike, do things that really let us build a, uh, a labor movement and a mass popular movement that we don't have in the U.S. right now. But two is it forces us to think about health as a long-term spectrum of needs. So right now, a, a, a big problem is that if you have private insurance, you have that private insurance plan for tops five years, six years. Eventually, you churn off, and maybe one day, God permitting, you go on Medicare. So no private insurer, no Aetna, no Cigna, no Oscar, no whomever, uh, really feels the, the, the pressure to take care of you long term, to give you what you need to stay healthy now or stay healthy in the future, because it's not their problem. These, these questions of long-term health, of population health, are difficult and they're tedious and they're hard, um, and they're not, like, well, they're not money makers, so nobody invests in them, right? Um, but... Once you have a single payer, a single payer, it bears the costs of providing care, and it also bears the costs and the risks of what happens when care is not provided. I think I say this in the book. Um, mm-hmm. if, if, for example, a, a person is getting sick because they don't have access to housing, or um, their housing is unsafe, it's full of mold, it's full of water, mm-hmm. it's flammable, whatever, uh, then they're going to the hospital, they're going to the doctor because of those conditions, then housing is healthcare. And you gotta invest in long-term safe social housing to bring healthcare costs down. Same with food. If you don't have access to food, so you're getting diabetes or comorbidities like cardiac failure, because it's not profitable to sell healthy food to poor people, and it's not profitable, but let them have the time to make food on their own, then you gotta invest in making food affordable or even free, and giving folks communal spaces to prepare it, communal social spaces to prepare food to bring long-term health care costs down. And these things work. Medicaid both sucks ass and also kicks ass because it's forced to invest in these things. Right. Because the Medicaid population is pretty sticky. You tend to stay in Medicaid for a long time. And it has to address these long-term health needs. Otherwise, Medicaid goes bankrupt because it's a state-funded it's a state program. Um, so Medicaid does invest in housing and invest in food. And it, when it does, it works really, 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 really well yeah. uh, when it can. Um, and we've got a, like a, a single payer is, is incentivized and compelled to invest in these kinds of long, long-term investments that nobody else is doing right now or can do. And that, I think, really 
really broadens our idea of health care into what I have, have using the term health justice, which I think is 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 also kind of a, a, a emancipatory because it ties together the fights for environmental justice, reproductive justice, housing justice, immigrant justice, prison justice into uh, a, a, a a tapestry of broader needs of uh, whether you're permitted, permitted to be safe in your own body. And when other countries, like other countries, do have this concept, they don't always express it very very well. But I've got one anecdote that I like a lot of what happened in Canada. This happened like a month ago, um, um, and I'm, I, I like it a lot. Uh, Quebec. This takes place in Quebec. Quebec is a province in Canada that I know for two things. One, it's punishing and deeply problematic black metal music. And two, <laughs> it's, a, a, it's low vaccination rates. Quebec has a measles vaccination rate of, I think, 75%. And for context, you want a 95% right. vaccination rate to achieve for immunity. Uh, um, and so Quebec was saying, how the fuck do we handle this problem? There are two kinds of folks that don't vaccinate their kids. Um, on one end, you've got the hardline anti-vaxxers, people that like know come hell or high water, they will not vaccinate their kids. It's mm -hmm. not a thing they're going to do, but they're a minority. Most folks kind of fall in the middle. They're vaccine skeptical. They don't want to hurt their kids, which is a good impulse. And so they Google vaccines, good or bad or whatever, and look at the results, listen to the radio, watch TV and go, oh, okay, there's a lot going on here. Maybe I'll wait a little while longer to make a choice. And in waiting, they choose not to make a choice and... Um, or in doing so, have made a choice and not don't vaccinate their kids or whatever. And these are the folks Quebec thought they could reach. So they hired uh, 53 social workers and sent them like two or three hospitals. And the social workers were vaccine counselors. They'd go to the neonatal unit. Oh, sorry. Um, before that, uh, the reason they had to do this: doctors weren't getting the job done. Um, doctors have limited amounts of time. Uh, doctors conceive of themselves as being very rational, mm -hmm. and they don't like working with irrational patients. Doctors are pricks. Um, often they're kind of brusque. Uh, they don't handle people's squishiness well. So they weren't getting the work done. So Quebec hired social workers. Social workers would go into the neonatal units and talk to families and say, hello, my name is Jean-Claude or whatever. I'm your vaccination counselor. Uh, are you thinking of vaccinating your kid? Uh, what information do you need to make this choice? Here's some charts. Here's some graphs. Let me hold your hand and talk to you about it. Mm -hmm. And fundamentally, whatever choice you make is yours, and I respect that. But I'm, I'm here. To, I'm, I'm here to help. And vaccination rates in the observed hospitals went from 73% to 87% over the course of a couple of months. That's totally not surprising. Incredible, yeah. right? Yeah. All, all this tedious labor. It's, all, it's always compassionate labor. It's always nurses. It's always social workers. It's always yeah. home health aides who are, oh, for the record, home health aides are paid $11 an hour yep. and billed at $120 per visit. Um, mass Jesus exploitation. Jesus Christ. Yeah. Um, home health aides often have to often live with their clients yeah, six yeah. days a week, which is um, fucking. As somebody who has as uh, a a family member who has a lot of health issues and also dementia, uh, goddamn. Yeah, uh, um, I think I mean they need a massive fucking national union. Um, but like that is a massively exploited uh, uh, right. labor base. But these are the folks that actually make a difference. It is not multimillionaire surgeons. It is no. not data packages. It is not apps. These are not the things which drive long-term health. It is only social workers and nurses and food and housing and shelter and safety. And that's a huge, I mean, we have to wrap up because we have gone way extra long, but this is so fun. We could go for like another hour. Um, but that is also, um, a huge component, if not like the structure of Cuba's health program, mm. which has incredible outcomes. They're yeah. always, gotta love the Cubans because they're always sending doctors to us in our disasters. They sent so many doctors to New Orleans after Katrina. I thought they were refused entry. 
They might have been, yeah. I think they tried they to send them. They just sent some to Haiti, I believe. Yeah, they always send. I think in America Africa. refuses them entry, but they've always, like, that's who, I mean, Brazil just kicked out all those Cuban doctors who were working in the, uh, in, like, rural areas, mm. who now, of course, have no doctors there. But my understanding is that, and I believe that there were some clinics in Baltimore a couple years ago that were experimenting with these approaches, and this is similar to what you're talking about in that the Quebecois, as I like to say, uh, we're doing. Quebecy. No, it's Quebecois. Isn't mm. that so nice? No, it's Canadian French, Quebec. Anyway, but in Cuba, I mean, basically, you don't go to the doctor, the doctor comes to you. And so when they're doing home health visits, they're able to see, you know, what is this person eating? What are they, how are they living? Yeah. What are their homes like? What is the home situation like? Because, like, you've stressed, and this is so important. So, there's one, patients lie, by the way. Yeah. But also, I do. there's so much more that goes into health than just what you're able to garner from a patient in an office. You know, there is like, you know, how are people living and eat? All of this contributes. Right. And so they have. I mean, Cuba is known, I mean, yeah. world famous for um, the caliber of their doctors. Now, they don't get paid $800,000 or whatever, no. but uh, not that doctors here make them. You know what I'm saying. Some do. I mean, like, yeah. I, I yeah. think... Uh, I'll surgeons, squ- heart surgeons. I'll squish this in real quick. I think a parallel fight is making medical training free. Um, yeah. Right now, one third of doctors, people in med school, uh, yeah. come from the top. Uh, income quintile, which is how you build. Like, if you, if you have a, a a doctor base that is that massively disproportionate, you get horrible health outcomes. Well, the AMA has a little. I mean, they like to keep things pretty. This is also a problem that we caused. Uh, there was a fear in the early nineties, early nineties, that we would have too many doctors by twenty twenty. Right. So there was like a New Yorker cartoon of uh, doctors in the breadline. This is a Clinton era policy that we're yep. still suffering from. Um, I have one more point uh, just on this. Um, we know that these things work. We know that long-term compassionate labor works. We know that housing stuff works. We know that legal services really work to bring up medical outcomes because you have all these legal rights against things that make you sick, but you only have access to them if you can afford to hire a lawyer. Right. Um, and like even the private sector is getting hip to it, right? Like, uh, univer- There's a big hospital in Orlando, and there's University of Illinois in Chicago, which have begun building or buying up housing for their most frequent flyers, right? And like that's cool. That's good. That does a lot to house people. That's always a, always a good thing. Brings down their long-term costs. But we simply cannot cede this kind of work to the private sector. No. Uh, Welcome to neo-feudal society. Right. I, I simply refuse the, the idea that we should let hospitals be the arbiters of who is housed and who is not. Um, this is why, and this is the thing, like this, this idea of like long-term health models of really assessing finally for the first time population health as a people, for really thinking about why we get sick and, and, and tilting against it, is I think the most exhilarating part of single payer, other than being able to afford my meds. Uh, um, and like along with the emancipation of the worker, this is like a, 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 a thing that is so compelling and so rich and so juicy, and I want it so desperately. I think that's great. Yeah, we were just actually talking about we twerk, we work, um, and how fucking horrifying they are. And God forbid, I don't know if they're into like we sick or whatever. I can imagine they have some oh. kind of like hospital expansion program that they're Microsoft, on. Amazon, Google. All I know have Amazon. Yeah. They they have a huge partnership with. Speaking of fucking private equity, Berkshire Hathaway. Yep. 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 And you know who their CEO is? Atul Gawande. He. 
Oh, yeah, sorry. Not of Berkshire Hathaway. Uh, no, of, of Amazon's yeah. health, unnamed health venture. Yeah, uh, 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 Gawande's... Fucking, like, Obamacare defender, liberal activist doctor. Oh, he, yeah. He is a, a... New York Times bestselling author and New Yorker columnist. And his writing isn't that good. No, also, it's like, well, I wonder what kind of friendly, woke face Bezos wants to put on his health venture. Um. So Gawande had this piece that came out in... Uh, 2000 and something um he had this piece um called the cost conundrum which oh was, yes, yes i read that and it was wrong we're, we're yes. discovering now that it was fundamentally wrong his model of how of how costs happen is not because of bad doctors rogue doctors jacking up costs uh it was structural level problems and it was payment level problems um and he his, this myth that he put forward is the progenitor of value-based payment of the yes. trying to clamp down rogue doctors um and this and, is a guy who's like on fucking oprah i mean he's like super famous you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like he's beloved yeah. as this like voice of liberal. And he's the reason. Amazon scumbag. He and Stephen he is Brill. Now, yeah. Atulga one day and Stephen Brill, who wrote uh, America's Bitter Pill, which I think I recommended to you, but I was not being clear. I was being semi-ironic. Yeah, about yeah, it. yeah. Uh, uh, um, no, I got that. Okay. Are uh, two of like the archangels of the the, the worst neoliberal models of health in the U.S. Uh, of how health works and how power works and how healthcare, mm-hmm. how power works in healthcare and how these things interact. Uh, pragma- pragmatic healthcare. And it's stupid and I hate them. I would say, I oh, I didn't get a chance to go off on the public option, but I do we really want to... We can talk wanna... about it another time. Right. Or we can talk about it today. I just want to say that people think, and the public option, they do this really well, people think that it's more like Medicare for All because it kind of sounds like it. It's not. It's got public in the name. Imagine, if you will, if someone took Social Security and said, okay, now we're going to have it compete out in a marketplace with private retirement funds that are all well-funded, meaning through advertising and marketing and trying to get you to it. Uh, It's submitting public provisions to the marketplace. It's definition, by definition, neoliberal in that regard. It is not a move toward Medicare for all, it will be doomed to fail, which will stop almost all movements toward a a national, I mean, single payer, and then ideally a national health service beyond that. Um, So don't be fooled either by the podcast runs or public option nonsense, because, and you won't be because you listen to Turn On and you're all brain geniuses. Public option is really stupid for a bunch of reasons, one of which is the fact that it sells out any, like, Single payer has some clear material advantages over um, other uh, healthcare models. Like single payer can do things that like small insurers cannot do. Public option concedes all that all that space to 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 preserve and privilege private profit. Like it's only reason it exists. Two, if you want to talk about capital and healthcare, um, there is no way that uh, the powers that be would permit a public option to actually threaten the uh, the the balance sheets of of of, of private payers. Look at student loans, for example. Uh, Whenever student whenever public student loan options um, threaten to compromise the integrity of the private sector, Sally May stumps in with seventy seven million dollars in lobbying and makes sure that that the kibosh is put on that initiative. Yeah. Yeah, no, so it's all bullshit except for Medicare for All, what it can do for emerging, re-emerging, reforming labor movement in the United States, and obviously Bernie Sanders, who's the only option. 
It's the only option. Yeah. If if he doesn't get the nomination to vote for Trump. <laughs> uh, fuck. <laughs> Sorry. Brace, don't show your I colors. I was imitating Bernie Sanders right there. Brace, stress right, Brace. No, then. no, no. I'm not even voting for Bernie. I'm voting for Kamala. <laughs> I'm going Tulsi. Yeah. Oh, dude. Fuck. Another woman I've had sex with. <laughs> This is so fun. We could talk about this for hours. I hope that our listeners are still listening and also that they don't get mad that we didn't talk about pedophiles too much. So, Tim, what is your book? Oh, my book, it's uh, called Health Justice Now. Single payer and what comes next. It attempts to do three things. One, explain what we have now. What is insurance? Why do we have insurance? What is Medicare? What is Medicaid? Uh, Why do we have employer-sponsored insurance? What are medical costs? Where do they come from? What is pharma, etc.? Number two, what we want. Um, we want federal single payer. There's a spoiler alert for my book. Uh, but what is that? What does that mean? How does this thing operate? Why is it good? What can it do? What can't it do? And then part three, what comes next, which is that broader idea of health justice. Um, given that the, we have made the U.S. one of the most dangerous countries to be sick in, how do we really conceive of health as a long-term need? How do we think about health and how we spend it? Uh, How does health affect you differently if you're black or brown or trans or live in a rural area or are pregnant or whatever? Like, how do these things, like, how does health manifest in these ways? And how is single payer the only viable solution for making a more just healthcare state in the U.S.? It also has a lot of wrestling references, making it the only healthcare policy book to mention Bret Hart and uh, Chris Benoit, rest in peace. uh, (laughs) He could have been saved by better mental health issues. Did he fucking kill himself? He had CTE. He had the brain of an eighty-year-old. Oh, uh, yeah. oh, excuse me. Better his, regular his, health. His move. His things. his his finisher was a diving headbutt from the top rope. Speaking of Damn. CTE, you know that MIT thinks that it's in healthcare. That MIT thinks that it's like just a couple years away from being able to diagnose CTE. Dude, RIP sports. You know who is because they can only do it post mortem now. Right. But like that'll fucking kill the NFL. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> MIT also has a center for C- C- CTE studies. You know who funds it? Who? The Vince McMahon family. Oh, oh no! no! You guys, this fight is bigger. <laughs> it just keeps getting bigger. Yeah, also, um, I had sex with Vince McMahon's daughter. <laughs> Tim, thank you so much. This yes. was Thanks. so fun. Thank you for having me. I have fun with this. This um, is fun. Yeah. We also have to thank you for writing the only non-pedophile policy book on single pair. Exactly. That's the Tim Faust guarantee. Yeah, not a pedophile. It actually, he has it notarized on the first page. <laughs> That's right. I've got my thumbprint stamped right there. Yeah. A notary. Seal my hand in wax. I can go as close to a school as I want. No one will stop me. That's I right. can go in the school. That's right. Sometimes I carry the book through an elementary school above my head, waving it around, and no cop can stop me from doing that. Absolutely. That's the non-pedophile guarantee. And yeah, and we here at Chewing On can say the same. Uh, I am Brace Belden, PhD. Uh, that means fat hog and dick. Uh, <laughs> uh, I'm Liz. Thanks, guys. We've this got, of course, Tim Faust. And 
Oh, sorry. I didn't mean to interrupt you. You did, though. I thought you usually stop talking after you say your name, so I... <laughs> uh, and we're joined by our producer, Young Chomsky. My apologies to Liz once again. Yes. Thank you, Brace. I accept your apology. Thank God. Thanks, guys. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Jeffrey Epstein. Jeffrey Epstein. Jeffrey Epstein. Jeffrey Epstein.